The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You're listening to Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 149 is, should you always obey the law? Or maybe, can injustice ever be justified? And we're going to be hearing a full performance of Plato's dialogue of the Crito, and then discussing it. You can join the discussion, get the text, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, set to go home on the third day in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, genteely accepting the judgment of the mob in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allwan, loving it or leaving it in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, wondering what's up with Thessaly in Middleton, Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) This is Bill Eumanns, civilly disobedient in New York City. Hey, so this is a special one. Bill, welcome. Star of stage and screen. Thank you. Um, very honored to be here. Thanks for coming on. So you are here having the discussion with us because we're about to hear you and who is your friend? Walter Bobby, who is one of the foremost stage directors in the world. He directed the current Broadway production of Chicago, which has been running for almost 20 years, but is also a brilliant actor in his own right, as the audience is about to hear. He's playing the role of Socrates, and I'm playing the role of Crito in Plato's Crito. And Bill, you came to me and you very generously offered to do this recording, this dramatization of a Plato dialogue. Tell us how you got that idea. Well, about 10 years ago, I started reading the dialogues of Plato just in a paperback edition that I found in a train station bookstore. I was about to take a long train trip. As I was reading them, it, as an actor, it occurred to me that these might be viable in terms of an actual production of some sort. And I never really got further than that, and I didn't actually have time to read too many of them. But uh, when I was working with Walter Bobby this year in the Broadway production of Bright Star, a musical by Steve Martin, it occurred to me that Walter was perfect for the part of Socrates. And I had, several years ago, I'd started listening to Parsley Examined Life, so it didn't take long to put the two together and say, hey, this would be something that might fit really nicely on Parsley Examined Life as an audio play. I contacted Wes, whom I had met in Boston a couple of years ago, and suggested this. He said it might work out very nicely. And so I started looking for a dialogue to do. And originally I was going to, I was ambitiously thinking of doing one of the larger dialogue, longer dialogues involving more people. But uh, that turned out not to be feasible at the time. So I picked Crito, which was short and involved only the two of us. And also, as you'll hear, Crito has a very intrinsically dramatic situation where the stakes are literally life and death. Socrates is waiting for his execution, and Crito is essentially trying to persuade him to escape from jail. So I thought, this is just perfect. We can do this, and it'll go on, it'll be easy, it'll be short enough to include uh, comments 
from everyone else after. So that's how that happened. Yeah, and I, you know, when I was looking at dialogues and we all did some looking at dialogues to recommend, I think it was really challenging because so many dialogues are Socrates sort of doing an interrogation and then someone saying yes or no back to him for the most part. And in this one, there's at least Crito to some extent gives it to Socrates. And also, you know, as you mentioned, the stakes are very high. You know, I thought it would be very difficult to dramatize a dialogue, but I was really thrilled with the way this turned out really thrilled that you guys did this for us. Uh, it should be said, I guess, at the outset that we cut it rather extensively in order to kind of make it more workable dramatically. But all the essential points or arguments are still there. Yeah. So, Bill, where did you learn Greek? <laughs> we did an English translation, which, which is, was, we based it on the University of Hawaii's translation, but we did a lot of rewriting ourselves in order to make it fit in the mouth a little less awkwardly. Well, thank you so much. Let's play it. Here already, Crito. It must be <coughs> must be very early. Indeed it is. About what time? Just before dawn. Oh, I wonder the warder paid any attention to you. He knows me now, Socrates. <laughs> Besides, he's uh, under some small obligation to me. Did you just come, or have you been here for some time? A while. Well, then why didn't you wake me? Instead of sitting there quietly by my bed. I wouldn't dream of such a thing, Socrates. I only wish I were not so sleepless and depressed myself. I've been wondering at you, seeing how fast asleep you were. I, I wanted you to be as comfortable as you could for as long as possible. Oh, so thoughtful. <laughs> I've often felt how fortunate you are in your disposition, more than ever now, when I see how easily and placidly you put up with your present misfortune. <laughs> well, my dear friend, it would hardly be suitable for a man of my age to resent having to die. <laughs> <laughs> Other people, just as old as you are, get involved in the same trouble, but their age doesn't keep them from resenting. <laughs> That's quite true. <laughs> oh, but tell me, why have you come so early? Oh, has the boat come from Delos? The boat which ends my reprieve when it arrives? Uh, not yet, but I expect it to be here today. Some people just arrived from Sunium and left it there. They say it'll be here today. And so, by tomorrow, Socrates, you will have to end your life. Well, Crito, if the gods will it, so be it. But I don't think it will arrive today. What, what makes you think that? I had a dream. Yes, just a moment ago. You were quite right to not wake me up. What, what was the dream about? I saw a beautiful woman in white robes who came up to me and said, Socrates, thou shalt come to the pleasant land of Phythia on the third day. It's a strange dream, Socrates. Not at all. It's perfectly clear to my mind. Mm -hmm, too clear. But look, Socrates, it is still not too late to take my advice and escape. Your death means a double calamity for me. Not only do I lose a friend whom I can never possibly replace, 
But besides, a great many people who don't know you and me very well will be sure to think that I let you down because I wasn't willing to spend the money. And what could be more contemptible than to get a name for thinking more of money than of your friends? Most people would never believe that it was you who refused to leave this place. Oh, my dear Crito, why should we pay so much attention to what most people think? Reasonable people will believe the facts exactly as they are. You can see for yourself, Socrates, that one has to think of popular opinion as well. Your present position shows clearly enough that the capacity of ordinary people for causing trouble is not confined to petty annoyances, but has hardly any limits once you get a bad name. If only ordinary people had that much capacity for doing harm, then they might also have unlimited power for doing good. Actually, they have neither. They cannot make a wise man stupid or a stupid man wise. They just act at random. Well, have it that way. But, but tell me this, Socrates. I hope you aren't worrying about the possible effects on me and the rest of your friends and thinking that if you escape, we're going to have trouble with the informers for having helped you get away and have to forfeit all our property or pay an enormous fine or incur some further punishment. If any idea like that is troubling you, you can dismiss it. We are quite entitled to run that risk in saving you, and even worse, if necessary. Take my advice. Be reasonable. Well, what you say is very much on my mind, Crido. Plus a great deal more. Well, don't give it another thought. I know some people who are willing to rescue you from here and get you out of the country for quite a moderate sum. Surely you realize how cheap these informers are to buy off. And supposing you don't want to spend my money... There are these foreign gentlemen staying in Athens who are completely willing to spend theirs. One of them, Simeus of Thebes, has actually brought the money with him for this very purpose. So, as I say, don't hesitate to save yourself on that account. And you mustn't feel any misgivings about what you said at your trial. Wherever you go, you will find a welcome. And if you choose to go to Thessaly, I have friends there who will take very good care of you. Socrates... I don't feel that it is right for you to throw away your life when you might save it. You're doing your best to treat yourself in exactly the same way as your enemies would, or rather did, when they wanted to ruin you. What is more, you are letting your sons down, too. You have it in your power to finish their upbringing and education. And instead, you're proposing to go off and desert them. Either one ought not to have children, or one ought to see their upbringing through to the end. It strikes me you're taking the line of least resistance, whereas you ought to make the good choice, the courageous choice, especially since you profess to have made goodness your object all your life. Really, I'm ashamed, both on your account and on ours, your friends. It'll look as if we played the coward's part all through this affair. First, there was the fact that your trial even came to court when it was totally unnecessary. That was the first act. Then there was the conduct of the defense. That was the second. And finally, to complete the farce, it appears we have let you slip out of our hands through some lack of courage and enterprise on our part. Because we didn't save you and you didn't save yourself. When it would have been quite possible and practicable if we had been any use at all. So besides this suffering, there'll be all this disgrace for you and us to bear. 
come. Make up your mind. Really, it's too late for that at this point. You ought to have made it up already. There is no alternative. The whole thing must be carried through during this coming night. If we lose any more time, it can't be done. It'll be too late. I appeal to you, Socrates, on every ground. Take my advice and be reasonable. My dear Crito, I appreciate, I value your warm feelings very much. But only if they have some justification. You know... It has never been my nature to accept advice from my friends unless, upon reflection, it proved that that was the best course of action. I cannot abandon principles I've held in the past just because of this accident that has happened to me. Not even if the power of the majority conjures up fresh hordes of bogies to terrify our childish minds with chains and executions and confiscations of our property. No, but to respond more fully to what you have put to me, how can we consider the question most reasonably? I owe you that. Suppose we begin with this view you hold about people's opinions. Was it always right to argue that some opinions should be taken seriously but not others, or was that wrong? Now, perhaps it was right before the question of my death, <laughs> but now can we imagine it differently just because <laughs> of my impending situation? Now, you are safe in the prospect of dying tomorrow, and you are not likely to have your judgment upset by this uh, impending calamity. So consider that. Do you think it's a sound principle that one should not listen to all the opinions that people hold, but only some? That's a fair statement, wouldn't you say? Yes, it is. In other words, one should listen to the good ones and not the bad. Yes. The opinions of the wise being good and those of the foolish bad. <laughs> Naturally. So, when a man is in physical training and taking it seriously, does he pay attention to all praise and criticisms and opinion or only when it comes to one qualified person, an actual doctor or a trainer? Uh, only when it comes from the one qualified person. Oh, very good. Now, tell me, we don't want to go through all the examples one by one. Does this apply as a general rule? Ought we to be guided by the opinions of the many or by that of the one? Or is all of this just nonsense? No, I, I think it's true. Then follow me and consider the next step. There is a part of us which is improved by healthy actions and ruined by unhealthy ones. If we spoil it by taking the advice of non-experts, will life be worth living with the body that is worn out and ruined in health? Definitely not. I see. What about that part of us which is ruined by wrong action and benefited by right one? Is life worth living with this part ruined? Or do we think 
that the part of us in which right and wrong operate is of less importance than the body. Certainly not. In fact, it is more precious, is it not? In that case, what we ought to consider is not so much what people in general will say, but how we stand with the expert in right and wrong, the one authority who represents the actual truth. So in the first place, your proposition is not correct that we consider the popular opinion of what is right and honorable and good. Of course, one might say, these people still have the power to put us to death. (laughs) No doubt about that. But as far as I can see, my dear fellow, that should have no effect on the argument. I want you to consider whether we still agree that it is important not just to live, but to live well. Well, yes. And that by living well, we mean living rightly and honorably. Yes. Then, in the light of this agreement, we have to consider whether it is right for me to try to get away without an official release. As for the considerations you raise about expense and reputation in children, I'm afraid, Crito, that they represent the reflections of the ordinary public who put people to death and would bring them back to life, if they could, with equal indifference to reason. Our duty, I think is to consider one question only. Shall we be acting rightly in paying money to these people who are going to rescue me, or shall we be acting wrongly? I agree with what you say, Socrates, but I wish you would think about what we should do. Let's look at this together, and if you can challenge my argument, I will listen to you. But if you can't, please be a good fellow and stop telling me over and over that I ought to leave without official permission. It is important to me to persuade you before I act and not do anything against your convictions. Now, do we say that one must never willingly do wrong, or does it depend on circumstance? Is it true, as we've often agreed, that there is no sense in which wrongdoing is good? Or have we jettisoned all our former convictions in these last few days because of my impending death? Surely the truth is just what we have always said. Whatever the popular view is, the fact remains that to do wrong is in every sense bad and dishonorable for the person who does it. Is that our view or is it not? It is. Then in no circumstances should one do wrong. No. In that case, one must not do wrong even when one is wronged, which most people regard as the natural course. Apparently not. Good. Here's my next question. Ought one to fulfill all one's agreements? assuming they're right, or break them. Fulfill them. Agreements must be fulfilled. That is the logical consequence of agreements. If we leave this place without persuading the state to let us go, are we or are we not abiding by our agreements? I cannot answer your question. I can see that. I can see that. So let's, let's look at it this way. Suppose that while we're preparing to run away from here, or however you would describe it, the law and the constitution of Athens were to confront us and ask this question. Now, Socrates, what are you proposing to do? Can you deny that by this act which you are contemplating, you intend to destroy us, the law, and the whole state as well? Do you imagine that a city can exist if its legal judgments have no force, but are nullified by private persons? Well, how shall I answer, Crito? Shall we say, yes, I do intend to destroy the law, because the state has wronged me by passing faulty judgment at my trial? 
Is this to be our answer or what? Yes, it is, Socrates. Absolutely. Then suppose the law says, well, what charge do you bring against us in the state that you are trying to destroy us? Did we not give you life in the first place? Was it not through us that your father married your mother and begot you? Tell us, have you any complaint against those laws that deal with marriage? Oh, no, none, none, I should respond. Well, what about the law that deals with children's upbringing? Are you not grateful to the laws requiring your parents to give you a cultural and physical education? Yes, I should say so, sir. Yes, I should say so. Then can you deny that you were our child and servant? And do you imagine that you are on equal footing with us and are justified in retaliating for whatever we do to you? You were not on equal footing with your father. You were not allowed to answer back when you were scolded or hit back when you were beaten. Do you expect to have such license against your country and its laws? That if we decide to put you to death... Believing that it is right to do so, you will try to destroy your country and its laws in return? And claim you are justified in doing so? Are you so wise as to have forgotten that compared with your parents, your country is far more precious, more venerable, more sacred, and held in greater honor? Do you not realize that you are even more bound to placate the anger of your country than your father's anger? that if you cannot persuade your country, then you must do what it orders and submit to any punishment it imposes, whether it be flogging or imprisonment. And if it leads you out to war, to be wounded or killed, you must comply. It is a right for you to do so. Both in war and in law courts, you must do whatever your country commands, or else persuade us in accordance with universal justice. What can we say to this argument, Grido? That what the law says is true or not? Yes, I think so. Then consider, they would probably continue, that what you are trying to do to us is not right. We brought you into the world and reared you and educated you. Nevertheless, any Athenian who is not satisfied with us can go wherever he likes if any of you chooses to emigrate to another country, not one of our laws hinders him or demands any loss of property. On the other hand, if any one of you stands his ground, we hold that by doing so he has undertaken to do anything we tell him. And we maintain that anyone who disobeys is guilty on three separate counts. First, because we are his parents. Second, because we are his guardians. And third, because after promising obedience, he is neither obeying us nor persuading us to change our decision. And they would no doubt pounce on me with perfect justice and point out that there are very few people in Athens who have entered into this agreement as explicitly as I have. I have held this agreement for 70 years with my country. And they would say, in response, Socrates, we have substantial evidence that you are satisfied with us in the state. You've never left the city except on military expeditions. You've never traveled abroad. You have chosen us. And the crowning proof is you've begotten children here. Even at the time of your trial, you could have proposed the penalty of banishment. You could have had our sanction for what you are now trying to do without our sanction. 
at that time, you made a noble show of indifference to death. In fact, preferred death, as you said, to banishment. But now you show no respect for what you said and no regard for us, the law, whom you are trying to destroy. You're behaving like the lowest type of menial, running away in spite of the contracts you agreed to live with. Crito, what do I say to that? Am I not bound to admit it? You have no choice, Socrates. Then they would say to me, You have made covenants under no compulsion or misunderstanding. You had seventy years in which you could have left the country if you were not satisfied or felt the agreements were unfair. And now, after all this time, you are not going to stand by what you agreed to? Yes, you are, Socrates. And you'll at least escape from being laughed at for sneaking out of the city. Consider what you'll do to your friends if you commit this breach of faith and stain your conscience. It's obvious that the risk of being banished will extend to them as well. You will confirm the opinion of the jury that you are a destructive influence on young people. And as for yourself, if you go to one of the neighboring states, such as Thebes or Megara, you will enter them with suspicion as a destroyer of law and order. Perhaps you intend to avoid well-governed states, higher forms of society. Or will you approach these people and have the impudence to argue the same as you did here, that goodness and integrity and institution and laws are the most precious possessions of mankind? Don't you think, Socrates, that you will appear in rather disreputable light? Because we certainly think so. Perhaps you will retire to Thessaly, arraying yourself in a shepherd's smock or some conventional runaway disguise. <laughs> will no one comment on the fact that a man of your age should dare to cling so greedily to life at the price of violating the most stringent laws? Perhaps if you can avoid irritating everyone. Otherwise, you'll live as a toady, roistering in Thessaly. No, Socrates. Be advised by your guardians. It seems clear that if you don't, neither you nor your friends will have a cleaner conscience here in this world, nor will it be better for you in the next. As it is, you will leave Athens as the victim of a wrong done not by us, the laws, but by your fellow men. But in leaving in that dishonorable way, returning wrong for wrong and evil for evil, you'll face our anger in your lifetime, and more importantly, the anger of the laws in that place beyond, which are our brothers. They will know what you have tried, and that world will not receive you with a kindly welcome do not take Crito's advice. We beseech you, follow ours. That, my dear friend, is what I hear them saying. Just as the mystic seems to hear the strains of music in his head, so loudly their arguments ring in mine. My opinion stands at present. It will be useless to urge a different view. However, if you think it will do any good, what else is on your mind? I have nothing to say, Socrates. Good. <laughs> good, my dear friend. Let's follow this course. 
God has pointed the way. Yay, let's clap. <laughs> that's the closest to the live audience reaction that you're going to get. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Standing ovation. Do it again. <laughs> Encore. <right>? Encore. Okay. <laughs> Do the fade out. Just keep going. It's a one-man show. <laughs> so let's get to this. Who wants to start? I just had a question just because I was interested in what Bill had been saying about rewriting it. And I was just curious what his experience was about what were the parts that were sort of worth excising. Because I've often, there's a kind of often inefficiency in a platonic dialogue. And you went through the actual activity of trying to get it down to its nub, especially dramatically. And I was just curious if you found that there was a rule or a a method to the madness in in trying to rewrite it, or was it just basically like rewriting anything else just to make it work for the performance? Well, that was the main thing, but there are a bunch of repeats, things that unnecessarily repeat. For instance, on the very first page in the introduction section, Socrates is saying, well, I don't think the boat will arrive today, meaning the boat from Delos, which signifies that his reprieve is over, meaning that he'd be executed tomorrow. And Crito says, what makes you think that? There were a number of lines in between there, and I just cut to Socrates saying, I had a dream just a while ago. We just cut things that seemed unnecessary and tried to just get to the point as quickly as possible. Well, I like that in the exchanges about like the physician or trainer, which is very typical platonic dialogue, that I don't know if you cut anything out of that or it just he was pretty brief, but it seemed like you were able to just bolster past that like, oh, yes, it's obvious that uh, the disciple in gymnastics is supposed to attend the praise and blame opinion, not of every man, but of one man only, his physician or trainer that it wasn't another 20 minutes of back and forth along those lines. Yeah, exactly, Mark. We tried to cut anything that seemed redundant or anything that had already been stated and just cut right to the very thing that was the point. We also cut the section where Socrates refers to Crito's objection about his abandoning his children, Socrates abandoning his children if he were to escape. Socrates returns to that argument later in the dialogue, but we felt that that was kind of implicit in the way he talks about the laws being the parents of the citizen. And we felt that the other arguments were much stronger. The way Socrates basically answers that in the original, in the dialogue is, well, you guys will take care of my kids, so I really don't have to worry about that. (laughs) After a long paragraph of repeating Crito's objection. So you basically made Plato sound smarter, which sounds a lot like (laughs) the the, the editing that we have to do on the podcast after we record it. We have to throw out, you know. Throw out the dumb stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should go over some of Crito's arguments for why Socrates should escape. We might just start by saying that this is one of four dialogues which belong to what are called the last days of Socrates dialogues, including Euthyphro, Euthyphro. the Apology and Crito, and then Phaedo. 
And all of these deal with the last days before Socrates is to be executed and about how that came about. Yes, and, and the apology is our episode one, so we can probably assume that our audience has listened to that discussion, or they should right. go do so right now. <laughs> right. That's the only episode that all of our audiences listen to. <laughs> <laughs> we did do the Euthyphro as well, but that is not as essentially in, in the content. It doesn't make you think, oh, he's about to die, even though he's like on his way to... Uh, he's standing in line at the, the, at the courthouse. courthouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this one, thematically, I had thrown out the question. We thought we could have a fairly informal conversation here, not necessarily, we don't have to quote anything, <laughs> you just did it, but is this still a philosophically relevant question today? And if not, why not? So the way I put it is, should you always obey the law or an alternative formulation? Can injustice, in other words, what you take to be injustice, ever be justified? In particular, he just says, we're going to accept as one of our premises going forward, don't you agree with me, Crito, that even if I'm wronged, I should not do wrong in return. And that seems something that is highly debatable now. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe we should just skip past Crito's attempts to persuade Socrates to escape, because they're basically to the effect that, as Bill mentioned, what about your children, or isn't this cowardly? And Yeah, and also it'll harm my reputation and the reputation of your friends. Socrates is in jail awaiting execution, having been found guilty of three crimes, or three laws governing three areas. One is studying the things in the sky and below the earth. Another is corrupting the youth. And the third is impiety, or not believing in the gods of Athens and inventing new ones. These are the laws that Socrates has been found guilty of violating. There are a number of arguments that he makes, and we could just quickly summarize. He makes the argument, what's called the ad populum fallacy, that something is right because the majority think it's right. And I was going to ask you guys about that. How does that compare to things that are normative? Does that argument have any validity? And then he makes a number of arguments that it'll be very easy and it won't cost much to spring Socrates from jail. He makes the argument that you'll be letting your sons down, the obligation to your sons. He makes the argument that Socrates was wronged by the city, and therefore he has no obligation to the city. He makes the argument that Socrates would essentially collaborate in his own death in a state-assisted suicide. And he makes essentially the argument that voluntary acceptance of death is always wrong and shameful. So Socrates addresses each of these arguments one by one in his rebuttal. Sure, the ad populum thing, it seems maybe to be the one that opens the biggest can of worms. Like, obviously, whatever the masses, the the teeming, ignorant mass is demanding of us is not going to be the right thing. But on the other hand, on what is ethics-based? If you think that there's some special revelatory, like, is it something that one can be an expert about at all? And if you don't think it is, if it really is just a matter of thinking through social norms to make them consistent or perhaps being critical of social norms, then yes, okay, somebody who's thought about ethics philosophically is maybe going to be able to be a better guide, a more consistent guide on how to resolve tough ethical choices than somebody who's never thought about it. But at the same time, what is the basis that they're working off of? The basis might be this methodological conservatism, right? We start with kind of what we all agree on. And if you want to put something 
radical and say, no, I actually think infanticide is okay. You know, that requires, yeah. right? this is something our next guest, Peter Singer, has said that in certain cases, and he's gotten a lot of crap for it because he is one of these experts. He's studied this stuff. And so the burden is on him to put forth this great argument for why this diversion from public opinion is justified. Yeah, Mark. I mean, this conflict is right there in the dialogue. The central argument that Socrates is going to make as to why he has to go to his death and obey the law, even if the law is in the sense wrong or unjust, is because the laws essentially are our parents and they constitute us. They are the formative powers who make us who we are, which is sort of like a more sophisticated version of the popular opinion argument, right? Because elsewhere, Plato will suggest that there's this strong relationship, including in ancient Greek, between law and custom and habit. And I think it's in Plato's laws that he sort of says that the laws grow out of customs and habits. And ideally, of course, they are reformed or persuaded to change, right, as he puts it in this dialogue, in the direction of what is actually just. But from the starting point, there's this very strong relationship between law and custom, which seems to be kind of implicit in this argument that the laws are the formative power, you know, to culturally, we are formed culturally and psychosocially through our parents. So yeah, it's very weird to go from, yeah, forget about popular opinion, but the laws make us who we are. That's an inherent conflict. This argument is essentially Socrates saying, if you're going to appeal to an authority, who should you listen to? Should you listen to somebody who really knows what they're talking about? Or should you listen to mass opinion? And Crito has to concede, no, no, you should definitely listen to the expert. If everybody says eating ice cream is good for lifting weights and training, but your actual gym trainer or physician or whatever says, no, don't eat ice cream, you would listen to the gym trainer because he's an expert. And methodologically, this is constantly what Socrates does in other dialogues, right? He says, oh, you're a priest. You must be an expert. Tell me about piety. Right. right? Or it's ironic that he constantly is destroying, methodologically in all these other dialogues, he's destroying the concept of authority with respect to saying, gosh, I thought you would know something because you're an authority, but you don't know. And then it gets completely reversed in this dialogue where he actually says, even though I know that the argument's wrong, I'm going to concede and bow to authority in this case and the laws of the city. The other thing I find interesting yeah, in this yeah. is Crito is supposed to be one of his most faithful, longstanding students. And he's like a child. It's like he's learned nothing in 70 years of following Socrates around. <laughs> Well, he's like the shallow rich guy, you know, he's like Socrates, Wall Street banker friend who's going <laughs> to tag along. But Seth, I think that's really important what you just said. And just to reiterate, I mean, he Socrates has made his living by sort of snubbing his nose at the laws, right? That's what he's accused of. He's accused of being an iconoclast, not respecting the mores of the time. And again, there's this strong relationship between mores and laws. And teaching young people to do the same thing, to not have respect for the state, not have respect for the laws. And here he is saying, actually, we must respect and obey the laws. So there's this tension between, you know, he does say, if we don't agree with the laws, we ought to either leave or stay at home and try to persuade the state to change, try and influence legislation and policy, which is what he's done. But the state may get to the point where that foundation 
isn't really supported within the laws, right? You may have a tyranny, you may have an authoritarian regime where you can't go around most of your life as Socrates did challenging people and then get executed for it. It would just never even happen. You would be disappeared from the very beginning. So there's a limit to his idea. It can't be that he thinks that civil disobedience is never okay because at least he's been involved in a kind of cultural disobedience all his life. Though he's always argued that he was not corrupting the youth and importantly, he was not preferring other gods to the gods of the city. But you make a point, Wes, that he doesn't consider that the city might be different. You raise the possibility that, well, maybe the city that he was obeying or is claiming to obey is different now than it was before. And that if it transforms into a tyranny, is that now the same city that one has to obey? And he doesn't make that distinction at all. I mean, he does seem to be making the pretty strong claim that implied in this whole conversation with Crito, because he's saying that, look, even if the state does you wrong and tries to destroy you, we have this general principle at work that we don't wrong others, even if they've wronged us. So that includes the state. And we must fulfill our agreements. And, you know, he has an idea that we have an implicit agreement with the state if we decide to stay in the state when we have the freedom to leave and we have to honor our agreements But the implication there is that in his case, it's just a verdict that's unjust. I mean, is there a larger law that's unjust? It's unclear, but he seems to be saying even if the laws are unjust, we have to obey them. So that's a very strong claim. But that second part you mentioned is also really important because there is that contract that you essentially signed implicitly by staying in the city. By having kids there, he says. By having kids and also, you know, don't you acknowledge that? Enjoying its benefits. Yes, enjoying its benefits. And keeping in mind that if you say love it or leave it in the U.S., like that's kind of a big pain. Like, where do you go? Do you go to Mexico? But these guys could go 10 miles and they'd be (laughs) out of the state. But it's not love it or leave it in this case. It's change it or leave it, right? That's the, Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess another part of the disobeying the just laws is for him leaving the city, he argues that if he leaves having not obeyed and done an unjust thing, and I guess that's part of the question, do you really do an unjust thing? So how can he go to another city and do what he does, that is, have conversations about justice and virtue, having done an unjust act, and also, from his perspective, living in a city that's much worse? How can he leave the city and participate in those unjust cities? He thinks they're worse than Athens altogether. I think the most interesting argument here, really the central argument, is this idea that the laws nurture us and raise us up and educate us and make us who we are. That is a truly fascinating argument that really had me unexpectedly delighted (laughs) (laughs) reading this dialogue, because how is that an argument for why we should obey? I mean, on the face of it, it sounds like the sort of parental argument. We gave birth to you, so you should obey us. You should respect your parents. If your dad slaps you around, you can't slap him back. So why should you... (laughs) What I'm going to put out here is almost certainly not true. But here in the 21st century, some iconoclastic scholar could potentially make the argument that the entire dialogue is intended as ironic. That, like a Brecht play, what you're intended to come away thinking is that Socrates was wrong. He should have escaped. I sometimes think this because the laws, when the laws are speaking, and Walter kind of played it this way, too, in our dramatic version of it, the laws come off as a kind of Dickensian villain. Darth Vader, you must obey us. You don't hit back when your parents hit you. You don't... The laws kind of sound like someone you would love to hate. 
Yeah, we should say here that that's one of the great things about the dialogue is play to uh, Socrates personifying the laws and speaking as the laws. I don't know anyone who's come away from this, reading this dialogue, thinking, yes, Socrates is absolutely right. We must always obey the laws. And Socrates, it should be said in reference to what we were saying earlier, almost at the very end of the dialogue, he says, it's not the laws which have wronged us. It's the people who implement the laws who have wronged us. So that kind of uh, has a, a mitigating effect on everything that's gone before, I think. Yeah, that's a complicated tension that we definitely need to explore. But I'll stand up, Bill, and I'll be one of the guys who finds it convincing. I thought Socrates' personification of the laws and his... They say, you know, for 70 years, you could have left. You could have left. You could have gone into government. You could have tried to change the laws. And all you did was hang around and enjoy the benefits of this free society by harassing people. And even when we set the trial, we said you can choose banishment or death, and you chose death. So what do you have to complain about? Like, you've had many, many opportunities at this point to disobey without the penalty of death. And you chose to go down this route, and you can't go and make all these choices and then suddenly at the last minute, because you don't like the way the outcome that they brought you to. Why not? Excellent point. Excellent. Absolutely right, Seth. Mm-hmm. But I don't see the much that there's much force to that particular argument. I think, I mean, I agree with you, Seth, that there's a way to make this convincing, but I think it has something to do with this, the laws are the formative powers that make you who you are argument. But I also want to like reiterate the sort of tension that Bill sees and the thing that might make us think it's ironic, because this seems explicitly contradictory to many traditional platonic themes, including... There's a tension between our tribal loyalties, our loyalties to kin and family, and our loyalties to state and the laws. And in this, he makes, so for instance, you know, if I'm a mafioso, my loyalty to the family transcends my loyalty to laws. And some people may think that that's the way it ought to be. I would never betray my brother just because of some rule, right? On the other hand, Socrates seems to be bringing those things together here. He's talking about the laws as if they were parents. So he's making it seem as if our fealty to the law is sort of like a kind of tribal or kinship relationship. Mm. That's really, really weird. I agree that that's weird. What I think he does in that part of the defense, though, is he says in personifying the laws, he says, listen, you made a bunch of choices that got you to this place. And ultimately, you are accountable for those choices. And that it's not a function of us doing something to you. It's a function of you having said, I will enter into this contract. I will submit to this judicial process and accept the outcome. And so it's almost as if it turns back around where Socrates is saying something about the integrity of his own actions and his own decisions. That Socrates always wants to be correct and just, and his actions would be unjust, not so much as a violation of the laws as the parents or whatever, but because it would be almost as if his integrity would be compromised. That's exactly right. He's explicit about that, right? And the argument that doing a wrong to fix a wrong is an evil on your soul. And that's the thing that he's most concerned about. Yeah, and and we get a larger explication of why that is in the Republic, right? Why is it that it's wrong, doing something wrong is not the way to go when someone has wronged you? Because it's essentially self-destructive. You deform your soul when you do something unjust. It's interesting that Crito doesn't object to the contradiction implicit in that, which is the objection to capital punishment, that if doing wrong is always wrong, and harming someone is always wrong, then it must be that to put someone to death 
which is undoubtedly harming them for having done a wrong, is in itself wrong. That the laws must be wrong to punish anyone because if it's not right to commit a wrong, even if you yourself have been wronged, then capital punishment must be wrong. Except, of course, if you see capital punishment <laughs> as a correction or a punishment in general, as a correction rather than as a punishment. Yeah, and I think you have to be a little careful about harm here, because if you go with just saying that any kind of corrective or disagreement is a harm, then the very nature of what Socrates does would be not allowed. You know? oh. So I think the thing there, the, you know, the way he's using this argument is to say, even if the state's unjustly trying to destroy me, I can't unjustly try to destroy the state. So remember, the part of the, his argument is to say that disobedience to the law is destructive to the state. Now, mm -hmm. and that's a whole other, I mean, that's, we could analyze that in and of itself, whether that premise holds. But then another point of analysis would be, well, can you really think of the state like a person? Can we wrong the state in the way it's clear that the argument is clear in the Republic? We can't do something unjust to someone else because of it deforms us. But is the state a someone else? There are all these really interesting alleys that one could go down argumentatively, whether the state is a person, whether it's really the case that we can owe the state anything in the same way that we owe people something, all that stuff. So the, talking about the, what kind of social contract this is, I think he pretty explicitly says it's something like Hobbes's version, where he says, given that you've accepted, and I take Seth's point that Socrates is making a very specific argument about himself, that he has been in the city for 70 years, he doesn't travel out of the city, he has sort of accepted it in a way that it's not really appropriate to say, well, there's no such thing as a social contract, just because I live here, I didn't agree to this. Like, well, he's for sure agreed to it, if there is one at all. And the terms of it that he outlines is, if you agree to it, if you experience the benefits, then you have to do whatever the state tells you. So there's nothing to, like, you really could have a tyranny of the majority type of law where it's not just a jury, but the actual law-giving body that says everyone named Socrates is to be killed. And that would be... <laughs> Not a very nice law. Uh, you might want to fight against that, but like that's within the state's prerogative. That's basically what happens. And then the question is, well, why can't the state be the one who's broken the contract? So this is why I find all these other subsidiary arguments not convincing. Like if it's just, oh, we made an agreement, well, then we have to kind of find an explanation of why do we have to stick to our agreements? Or, oh, you made all these decisions. Well, why does that even matter? And in this case, why can't the state be the one who's broken the agreement? It's explicitly not an equal agreement, right? The way he formulates it, it's an agreement of an inferior to a superior from the beginning. But in that way, it's not a contract. I mean, Mark used the phrase social contract, and exactly. in some ways it resonates like that, but it's not a genuine contract where everybody has signed their names on some third thing and that they all have equal obligations. The state, in fact, has a different kind of obligation to the citizens, and the citizens have the obligations of an inferior to exactly. their superiors. This is why I think all paths sort of lead back to this argument about the laws being formative of us, of making us who we are. Well, if they really are formative of us, and if our disobedience to the law is destructive of the law and of the state, then it's in some ways it's destructive of the self. It sort of sounds like a reiteration of the argument in the Republic that we ought not to do unjust things. In, in a sense, it's an argument from a kind of egoism because of its effects on us. Let's put aside for just a minute the part of the argument about the city and the judgment that you're doing wrong by disobeying the laws of the city. What about the part of the argument of just when you do wrong, and even if we just call it the wrong that you understand to be wrong, that you harm yourself? 
Is that part just good? Yeah, I think that the only way to explain that is to say the city is sort of foundational to you as a self. Like, how can you harm yourself through harming the city unless you establish this foundational relationship, which he tries to establish? Well, that's why I like to make the connection to Hobbes, because, right, if it weren't for the city, then barbarians would have come in and killed you when you were an infant. We would all have killed each other. Yeah. Yes. And that it's really, yeah. it gives you a nice appreciation of this is back when governments were shiny and new. And so he's saying that they're even more God beloved than your parents, which sounds like a wacky thing to say today. But yeah, this was an innovation, a fragile thing that, you know, there really was a thought that if people start disobeying, like it's not like the giant United States of America. It's this little tiny democracy that if one person who's very influential were to say, just screw the laws, don't listen to laws like that very well, there could be a breakdown of society in a very real way. I think that's right, Mark. But do you think you just said that we would prefer the state to our parents as a crazy idea? Now, I would say that that argument is already won. It's absolutely the case that the state wins out on your personal relationships. That's like the foundation of government. In that if they're committing massive crimes or abusing your siblings or whatever, that yes, the state is a thing. We would not be sympathetic if you just said my loyalty to my family overrides that of the state. I guess, yes, that is the active. The state won that argument already. Yep, yep. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that we consider the state more beloved in any sense in the way that he puts it here. So let's be careful here. He doesn't say the state. I mean, I don't know what the translation is. We said we weren't going to get into Greg. The city, the poll. He does say that is usually translated state as well. Yeah. The personification, he talks about the laws. Yes. And the relationship between the state and the laws is just, he treats the laws as constitutive of the state. Right. But the laws themselves don't have any motive force. What I mean by that is the prohibition and the law against promoting false gods or whatever, is something that is meaningless until somebody brings the charge up, until the jury of 500 or whatever it is, the the citizens, make a judgment. So in a certain sense, the laws are like the ocean. You know, the ocean can provide fish and sustenance and recreation, or they can, in a storm, you know, knock over your ship and destroy your ship. They're neutral. It seems to me complicated to try to untangle the notion of the state versus the people that constitute the state, particularly in Athens. Well, another way of putting what you just said, Seth, is what are the laws? Are the laws what human beings would legislate at the ideal limit of inquiry? Are they these abstract things that are necessarily just? Or when we say the laws, are we talking about the laws that are made by human beings and could be very, very flawed. And it seems just in the context of this dialogue, it's the latter, right? The argument is that the laws could be unjust and we would have to obey them anyway. And that's a radical claim that means that your entire state could be dysfunctional and screwed up and it could be creating, because the laws are formative of human beings, dysfunctional, messed up human beings. And then the claim here is that we have to obey them anyway, and that the only way to approach them is not to try to destroy them, but to sort of gradually persuade them to change. The big idea here is that the laws are not human beings, even if they're made by human beings. When you are agreeing to obey a law, regardless of how well or stupidly it's enforced, the claim is that you're doing something other than obeying other human beings. Now, Part of the argument that we're having here is, is that difference really true? Are you really obeying something other than just other people who are claiming that there are these laws, but really what you're doing is you're obeying them? Well, the claim here could be that, you know, that even if the laws are the worst possible laws, lawfulness as such 
is better than lawlessness. If we imagine, you know, if we really think that disobedience to the law means that the laws have been destroyed and there is no state, that anarchy is worse even than a bad polis, even than a tyranny or something like that. That's what he's getting at with this formative principle, is that if we disobey the law, we essentially destroy everything. And that the right approach, you know, even if they're really screwed up laws, is you obey them and then you engage in this dialogue with them. We shouldn't underestimate, Mark brought this up earlier about, you know, governments being shiny and new. It really is true that the idea of having laws and providing laws to run cities is something that is relatively new and not like brand new, like last week in the contemporary context of Socrates, but the notion of a lawgiver who brings rules to a city that is different categorically from being the monarch is a huge deal. And I think what you said, Wes, is exactly right. From that perspective, what's at stake is whether or not you have a city at all versus a monarchy or a... A tyranny. Or a tyranny. And I think this is where the analogy with one's parents is is interesting because it is an analogy that you might think would fit more towards a king, right? Where the king has all of the subjects as their children, mm-hmm. right? But he's making it that the laws are strong in that way and trumping that aspect that you would have a a king who told everybody what to do. And for them, that means that there's that capriciousness in kingship or tyranny. So you're saying that there's this thing called what we now call the rule of law, which is superior even to the highest legislator in the land, right? Yeah, and this question of the rule of law is, you know, riddled throughout the Greek experience because there's all these tensions that we've been talking about, right? With commitment to one's family and commitment to other people besides the laws. And what Wes just said, you know, that the laws can just be unjust. What Mark said put me in mind of the Oresteia and the notion of the founding of the state, which was really about a shift from the notion of the law of power or of strength or an eye for an eye versus the institution of codified laws, and then the notion, in the case of Athens, of actually kind of a peer jury in some respects, as opposed to just the capriciousness of the decisions of an individual, or where people solve their problems themselves. And I think one of the things that you get out of this dialogue, but also in general in that context, is that Socrates believes that the Athenian state in which he lives, and which he, in some respects, has tried to make better by helping to reform the ideas of the citizens, is itself much more virtuous than other states in the region. And the reason why he didn't go to any of these other states, and he makes that offhand comment about Thessaly in this dialogue, is that he's buying into the concept of a law-driven state with the types of systems of justice that they have. And in a sense, buying into the notion of capital J justice as it's embodied in the Athenian laws and the Athenian state. And so when he talks about, do you return a wrong with a wrong? Would it be just to do something unjust? He's basically saying, look, in the context of the Athenian laws and the Athenian state, we have justice. The fact that injustice can still happen by virtue of the actions of individuals doesn't mean that we should break down the structure of the state by responding with injustice. And I think that's really critical. I took it as an even more radical claim, though, that 
you could have a completely authoritarian regime and still be required to obey the rules. You'd be better off under a completely authoritarian regime than you would be under the power structure of nature. Huh. Well, I don't know that I agree with that reading. Why then the whole emphasis on the laws being unjust? Because I think, you know, if the law can be unjust and the state is trying to destroy Socrates unjustly, then naturally we have to think about what the limit case is. What if all the laws are unjust? You know, what if it's the worst possible regime ever? Would we have to obey then? The alternative claim is, oh, there is some point where the regime is so unjust that we no longer have to obey, which is not a argument that Socrates makes explicitly. Or it's the more radical claim, which I see here, which is that, no, even in the worst authoritarian regime, as Bill put it, any sort of rules are better than no rules or a state of nature. And we would still have an opportunity to persuade, which I think may not be right, right? Maybe the regime reaches the point where it's unpersuadable, but that seems to be the claim. Do the conditions of having enjoyed essentially the largesse of the city and not wanted to leave when one had the opportunity, qualify that a little bit, Wes? The extreme case where the laws of the city are completely unjust and it's a completely corrupt city. In fact, you know, he brings up other cities that are horrible, unjust places to live. So it seems to imply that in this case, while this law is unjust, Socrates still believes that the city itself, in its essence, is just. And that, you know, the evidence for that would be that he didn't leave and all that stuff. Now, it may be that that ironic reading that we talked about earlier would come to bear here. That, in fact, it's really an argument that he should have left in the first place because none of that's really true. Yeah, he's sort of throwing everything against the wall as far as arguments go. And it's sort of part and parcel of sort of thinking of the state as a parent. Oh, they brought you into this world. They gave you this and that. But you could say that of any regime, right? Or let's just think of it the parent analogy. When parents say, I brought you into this world and you owe me, they don't say, and I wasn't abusive, right? That's the kind of thing an abusive parent might actually say, is no matter how bad I've been to you, I brought you into this world, I gave you these things, obviously you enjoyed it, you ate the food I put on the table, you did, you know. So I'm not ruling out your guys' interpretation here, I just think... We are necessarily like brought to think of the more radical interpretation, which is that this would go for any regime. I don't think it could exactly be right, because I think what's critical is that if he's going to say, well, if you had the liberty to leave or you have to persuade it, well, again, what if the regime is so authoritarian and it's unpersuadable? Isn't there some point when rebellion is actually necessary? That seems right to me, but it doesn't undercut the more fundamental point that lawfulness in general is preferable to chaos and we look at historical rebellions and we see how horrible the results actually are for a long time, like the French Revolution, and we can see that point there. Maybe even in the most authoritarian regime, maybe that gradual persuasive change, even though it's going to happen very slowly, is possible. There's always some little crack in the armor where you're living in Orwell's 1984, but you might say, well, gradually speech will find its way in and gradually the laws will change. And that's better than just blowing everything up. I think we're faced with the question of whether or not Socrates, just reading it on surface, that he believes that he was convicted unjustly, but he's obligated to obey the law. And that would imply that at the very least, the city is just enough as far as he's concerned, even if all of the arguments that he throws up against the wall are kind of crap, his actions are such that he agrees with that, or he has a death wish, you know, maybe that, <laughs> maybe, maybe he wants to be a martyr. 
Well, I think he certainly makes the point of everything he said in his life more effectively by dying and giving his life for it. It's sort of a tacit point being made here. And we see in history that people who have died for various causes are always, always become famous, and those causes become celebrated to some extent. Yeah, I mean, his death, in a way, could be an act of persuasion, could be exactly. the mm. ultimate act of persuasion he's talking about that might change the state. And we will see whether Bill Cosby, who is famous for, I brought you into this world, I can take you out, whether he will ultimately flee to Thessaly or face justice. <laughs> or let someone put some hemlock in his drink. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> I'd like to quickly ask you guys, I guess a point of history, this principle that Socrates says here that one ought to never do wrong even when one is wronged, to what extent is that a new idea here? I know that in the Neoplatonic school it kind of influenced Christianity, and we find that theme coming up again in Christianity, but is that new here? You mean new in Plato or new in general? Yeah, and uh, new in history. And uh, like the classical thing, the pre-Socratic idea is that power should be what, that if you're done wrong, you you have, you're obligated even to revenge yourself, right? In which case you would not be doing wrong. So in in this case, it's, he is explicitly asking, should you do what you take to be wrong? when you have been wronged, whereas the classical way of putting it, you know, in Homer or something might be, you have been wronged, so therefore, it would not be what you perceive to be wrong to then take revenge, to be violent, or to disobey the law, or whatever. It's a matter of defining wrong. Yeah, this actually, don't do what you take to be wrong, that does seem new here. Well, yeah, the Thrasymachus, you know, and the sort of Thrasymachian ideas that might makes right. Right is defined by might, in a sense. So if you can exactly execute your revenge, in a way, you sort of made your case at the same time. And we see, you know, all of that is more explicitly stated in the Republic, which is a, you know, they call that a middle dialogue, and Crito is an early dialogue. But I think, yeah, we definitely see hints of the same sort of idea here without the explanation. There's another question, or sort of perhaps contradiction, Involved in Socrates' rebuttal of the ad populum fallacy, the opinion of the many versus the one expert, the opinion in general versus the correct opinion. So if you took that as a general principle, then democracy itself would only be valid if the opinion of the wise was valued over the opinion of the ignorant. I guess this goes to what you guys were discussing so well earlier. And it goes to my question that I first wanted to raise and that Mark sort of brought up when you said, if you live in a society where it is normative to sacrifice infants, for example, like in the proto-Almec civilizations of prehistoric Mexico, it's normal to sacrifice infants. To what extent is, I guess, the opinion of the many seen as normative Rather than the opinion of the wise, as Socrates or Plato seems to suggest, that the opinion of the wise should be valued over that of the ignorant. I think I'm going to punt that to our upcoming episode 152, our live episode in Providence, Rhode Island on Tocqueville at Brown University. We will be dealing with the difficulties of democracy <laughs> rather than bringing them up in the last five minutes of this, <laughs> this discussion. It's also worth pointing out that even a pretty straightforward reading of the Republic would tell you that Plato isn't exactly a simple fan of democracy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, 
So He's not any kind of fan of democracy, actually. Yeah, for the reason of it not getting to the good, the right thing, right? You should listen to the right thing, not what everybody else thinks. Yeah, because a bunch of schmucks might indict your teacher and unjustly prosecute him. That's the worst thing that could happen with democracy. That's, in fact, what did happen. Well, this is what Bill's getting at, is this the weird fact that he's talking about obeying the laws, but not the many, but then the laws are dependent on the many. In, In a democracy, you could have factions that come up such that on day one, you get law A passed, and day two, you get law B passed that actually, in part, contradicts Law, law A. So in that case, like, you know, that seems to be the advantage of Hobbes's version of just have a single monarch, or at least you have to have a judiciary in there as part of what you're considering the state rather than just the laws, because the laws are going to be ambiguous, even contradictory. The, law, the monarch can change his mind, too, though. And that's true. May have a chance to be even more capricious, you know, if we assume that a democracy is republic as well and has checks and balances and mm-hmm. so on. All right, should we go around and do some closings here? Who wants to start? I think we should give Bill pride of place. Please. Well, I think it's still a very relevant dialogue. The question of civil disobedience, having been brought up again by Thoreau in his essay on civil disobedience, and the question to what extent is revolution to be feared as something worse than an already bad government? as Wes brought up, is, I think, a very important question, especially with, you know, presidential elections perennially every four years in our country, bringing up everything has to change, you know, this is in a sense a revolution. We know that revolutions are horrible, perhaps as it would be better, as Socrates is arguing, to persuade the laws slowly and incrementally, especially in a society that's relatively open. We see in Syria, And in Iraq, most recently, how dreadful it can be if violent revolution is brought about. I just wanted to underline Bill's point about it being relevant. And rereading Crito just reminded me how great these dialogues are, especially this group of four, in the sense of bringing salient questions right out there. So you you won't get a solution necessarily, and you'll argue about what does Socrates really think and what does Plato really think? But there's such a salient presentation of the stakes and the argument itself. And you can end up with just really delving into the problem of, in this case, whether you should obey the city or not. And in just such a short dialogue. Yeah, I think you can go even broader, even if you think that certain types of civil disobedience or even other types of like normative disobedience, I guess, where it's a, say a burning of a flag or what kinds of protests are actually the right way to go about things. You could think about it in that context. Even if people are doing things that aren't technically illegal, you could think about this whole dialogue in terms of the extent to which we ought to be patriotic, the extent to which we paint our attempts to change the laws and change the state as the state is bad or the other extreme, yeah, ultimate patriotism or this middle ground, which he's suggesting, which is in a way we have to say that there are good things and bad things and there's something good. And then we use the good, even if it's minuscule, even if there's hardly anything good about the state, if there's just something, we leverage that and try to make it bigger. That seems to be the idea. Just as part of my closing, as I mentioned before, 
what I think is really the most profound part of this dialogue, absolutely fascinating, is this argument surrounding the idea that laws are formative for us. And by the way, in our psychoanalytic episodes, especially Lacan, this idea is not new. This idea of the law as being a distinct psychosocial step that supplants an earlier phase, which is just nurture and dependence. And I think all of those connections are really fascinating. And there's something, even though on the face of it, it sounds like you just ought to obey your parents. There's actually something absolutely, you know, really profound about all that. So, so is this dialogue timeless? I feel like my two questions that I started off with divide now. Should you always obey the law was the first one. And I think that it's kind of one in our society that no, if the law is unjust, you should not obey that law. That's in history, the philosophical outcome, at least that most of us buy that we're not going to, if there's segregation laws or something, we have so many things from the civil rights era that give us the example. Although the, once you open that box, then it's kind of, should I not copy music or whatever? <laughs> like in terms of, it's not an unjust law that is necessarily controlling intellectual property. But at the same time, you might feel like it would be more prudential considerations. Anyway, it becomes more of an independent moral question. Is that 25 mile an hour speed limit at this particular location, which is not near a school, justified? <laughs> and if you decide to break that, like, well, the biggest thing is you're probably going to get caught and get a ticket. It's not that you honestly think that there's no reason this should be 25 rather than 35, and I'm just going to drive 40 here. Mark, as you and I know from working in this industry, there is a what they call a design speed limit for a roadway, a natural speed limit. And engineers try to tell legislatures, you ought to make the speed limit its design speed limit. That's what's safest. Oh. But legislatures, cities will often make them artificially low, which is actually dangerous, but allows them to collect more revenue. So there you have another case where you might <laughs> justify civil disobedience. There's a bad law. Sure. And of course, there's so many instances, particularly in war, when you're commanded to torch a Vietnamese village or drop the A-bomb on the Japanese do you respectfully decline? <laughs> right. Or just the draft at all. This is something we didn't bring up in here, but he brings up as one of the arguments that the state can tell you to do whatever it wants. And the most common thing is not going to be that it decides to execute you as it did with Socrates, <laughs> but that it's going to draft you to some far off war. And this is just something that in the last 50 years, I feel like people now would just not take that. Like if there is a draft, we would have a major revolution or something. Yes, everyone would look up from their cell phone simultaneously and gasp in horror. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at the same time, so the, the second question, what you take to be injustice, can that ever be justified? I think that the lesson from Plato here is entirely applicable today, and it's that Christian response of, no, just because somebody is violent to you doesn't mean that you should become a vigilante and go kill them and their family or something like that. This is all, yes, that's right on target. And that was a very live issue, of course, for his audience before Christianity pervaded our culture. I think it's still a live issue, as we saw with Nussbaum, the whole retributive exactly. elements of our society versus, yeah, push against that. So. Yeah, you shouldn't give the Christians credit for bringing that up, Mark, because that was the exact <laughs> theme of Aeschylus' humanity. So, I mean, it goes back to for Athena. popularizing right? it. They had the popular version. <laughs> and Nietzsche will lampoon the retributive parts of Christianity. Seth, do you want to have the last word? Give us your closing. You're all wrong. <laughs> yeah. I have to say that I don't take the strong reading that Wes 
does the argument that the state raises you and that you therefore owe it some kind of obligation regardless of how just or unjust it is. I don't see that as an extrapolation, something that you can generalize from. Like many platonic dialogues and even like we talk about Aristotle and Aristotle talks about virtue and what makes for virtue, right? That you talk about societal norms. We always get wrapped around the axle of like, oh, you know, well, he believed in slavery and you could be virtuous and own slaves and all that. There's a certain context I feel like has to be put around this that Socrates is talking specifically about himself and specifically about Athens and Athens in the context of the shining beacon on the hill with respect to the type of state that it had, which was quite differentiated from many other states in the region. But I think also there's a complication here that we didn't really have time to untangle around. Is the law unjust or is it the judgment about the law? Socrates, even in the Apology, he doesn't say, the law against impiety is unjust. What he says is, I was not being impious. Listening to my demon doesn't mean that I don't have respect for the gods of the state or whatever. He protests his innocence, not that the laws themselves were unjust. Now, maybe I'm completely misremembering, but I think he's basically saying here, I bought into the structure, I bought into the concept of being judged, and in that respect, I have to accept the consequences of my actions. And I don't think that's any different than civil disobedience. When you say, I think this law is unjust, so I'm going to protest it, and I understand that I may get arrested for doing that. The consequences are less dire, you're not drinking hemlock, but you are saying, I'm protesting, but I'm understanding that what the consequences of my actions are going to be. Now, when you talk about people who left the country to avoid the draft, I don't know, maybe it gets more complicated, but I think it's a very nuanced and interesting and provocative dialogue for being as short as it is. Listening to the demons that tell me what to do does not make me unjust. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you again for producing this wonderful thing. Thank you. Excellent to be on. Good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs) Good night. Say you think you're happy, say you feel kind of happy, don't you know to cry? Just before it asks, check out the truth or relax, show what you've done in your action, just continue to lie. Now you never knew comfort is a leaving you down in my heels, erecting a rocket to entertain Nothing left to explain, boy.
Give me some ground, but you don't 